Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vella. This episode will be a joint episode with my friend, Owen Pond of Ask a Millennial Christian, one of the other shows on the Christus Victor Network. If you enjoy this content, why not head over to that network and check out what else is on tap there. Also, please consider becoming a sponsor for us on Patreon or by clicking on the Become a Sponsor link on the blog. Now today, Owen and I discuss some of the reactions to my paper that I recently put out arguing for a historical, grammatical, and polemical reading of Genesis 1. If you don't know what that is, you will after this episode and after uh, the paper that I present later. In the next few episodes, I'm going to give you an audio version of the paper, since I know a lot of you listen while you commute, or you travel, or you shower. Uh, I know who you are. Just kidding. No, I don't, and I don't want to. Uh, And some of you don't have the time to read through a 22-page academic paper. So hopefully Owen and I discuss these issues in a way that will wet your whistle for the upcoming shows and prepare some of you to start thinking about Genesis 1 in ways you had not before. This is going to be a joint show, and Owen is a much better moderator than I am, and so you'll hear his intro and his outro for the discussion as well. So with that, enjoy the show. Welcome to a joint episode of Ask a Millennial Christian and the Freed Thinker. Uh, Tyler and I are both hosts on the Christus Victor Network, and we thought it'd be a good idea to come together and put out this particular episode on both of our podcasts so that the listeners of each can get a little bit of exposure to the other's content. In particular, we're going to be discussing a paper that Tyler recently released called A Historical, Grammatical, and Polemical Reading of Genesis 1. And we're kind of going to go through some subjects just to help frame the paper and put it in in context of the discussion over Genesis 1, creationism, young earth versus old earth, versus that's not even what Genesis 1 is talking about. So, Tyler, would you like to say anything before we dive into... I have a bunch of questions to sort of uh, help the listeners and myself understand where you were coming from, but is there anything you want to say to set this up? Um, yeah, so I think 
for me, one of the reasons why I really decided to write the paper was um, in discussing Genesis 1 and creationism um, in my work in apologetics, I started to realize that a lot of the discussion um, circled around interpretations of Genesis 1 that I just didn't really see um, in the text. And they were attempts really to um, in a lot of ways, by for Christians to to you know play science with the atheists, um, and so they wanted to show um, you, you know no Genesis one uh, is a, a good scientific alternative to what they thought was basically a threat to biblical um, biblical inerrancy and and, uh, and and Christianity, which is the the you know the quote unquote threat of evolution um, and naturalism, um, and so to kind of combat that, they came up with their own. Um, quasi, um, I want to say pseudo-scientific um, uh, interpretation of Genesis one, um, where I, you know, in in my study, I just I, I found those types of readings of of Genesis one to be um, problematic in in my study of the text and and um, the my study of of hermeneutics in general. Hermeneutics is just the the art and science of biblical interpretation, or actually the interpretation of any any text. It doesn't, doesn't just have to be the Bible. Um, but where we use a historical grammatical method in all other um, sections of, of, of the Bible, um, but for some reason it wasn't really getting that, that used on Genesis. And so um, I thought I would do a little exploration on that, uh, based on a lot of people asking me just, hey, what's... Um, what is your view on Genesis one? What's happening? Is you know, is it is it against evolution? Is it for evolution? And and after a while of studying it, I just start, came to the point where I'm like, that's just the wrong question to ask of the text. And so that's uh, kind of what drove the paper. Well, that's a great place to start. Let's in the paper you sort of tease out this concept of genre, and it's certainly not a new concept. It's it's been in vogue at least for the past two centuries, talking about how the Bible what we think of as one book is actually 66 books and those books come from different genres and then sometimes when you look within a particular book you'll see within that one book also different styles of genre now in common usage we know genre from say film for example oh that's a comedy or that's a drama that's a period piece. Like those are different genres of film, so different types of film. What exactly are we talking about when we talk about the genre of a text in the Bible? It's really similar to what you just said with movies. I mean, there there are different kinds of literature um, that have different structures. They have different motifs. They have um, different ways of getting across the message. Um, and we find that across the 66 books of, uh, of the Bible. Um, and, and what makes it really interesting is the Old Testament um, specifically, because that's really the relevance for, for Genesis, um, was written during a time period where they used dramas or they, they used genres that we don't really use anymore. Um, and they didn't use genres that we use now. So a lot of times when, when we're coming to a text and we're trying to understand um, the, the, the text itself and how to interpret it, um, we're either bringing our genre onto it or we're trying to read them, you know, read the text in a way that the author could have never possibly meant for them to be read. Um, and, and so some good examples of different genre, you know, you have 
um, kind of uh, historical narrative or um, theological narrative in, in Genesis. You have law in, in different passages in Exodus to Deuteronomy. Um, you have uh, poetry in, in Psalm. You have wisdom literature in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, prophetic literature, apocalypse. Um, I mean, you have all these different genres, and, and they're to be read in, in slightly different ways um, that, that, um, than, than we would read now. And, and especially since in in modern times, with the rise of kind of post enlightenment modern historiography, for as as great of a genre as that is, and we love it in uh, in in historical books and um, in in studying World War Two and Vietnam and things like that, we really want um, the historical um, analysis that we use now. That's just not how they did history back then. That's just not how they wrote it back then. Um, and so sometimes we, we mishandle the text by expecting them to write it the way we read it. This comes up a lot when we read the Gospels, right? So the, the Gospels are a type of historical genre known as bios, um, which is kind of a, a, a reverent uh, a biography of, of a person. Um, but they didn't use modern canons of historiography. They're, they're not written really in um, historical chronological order they'll you know events will be arranged thematically um and they'll be arranged um you, you know based on different motifs and you'll have for example and you'll have matthew you have a lot of the parables that are just they'll they're stuck together in one in one group it doesn't mean that jesus said all those things in the exact same day in the exact same speech um, it's just that's how Matt was organizing um, to, to get a certain specific point across. So um, genre is really important when we're reading to understand these texts. Yeah, I think a, a good example or just one example, people, we understand this when it comes to the way that we read things now. And so, for example, a newspaper article, we're going to read differently or at least understand the language differently than a poem or a history book. There's certain markers in it that tell us how to read it. Uh, just something that came to mind, Oh, Captain, My Captain, the poem by Walt Whitman. Right? If you read it, the, the last part, My captain does not answer, his lips are pale and still. My father does not feel my arm, he has no pulse nor will. The ship is anchored safe and sound, its voyage closed and done. From fearful trip, the victor ship comes in with object one. Now, if you read that and pretend it's a news account, well, it sounds like someone's writing about a captain on a ship. But the poem's actually about Abraham Lincoln. It's about his death after taking the nation through the Civil War. And we understand that, and no one's going to fight you on that. And and we need to understand that these genres, the way that we interact with them today, existed in the time of Scripture and is, is there for us to uncover. Now, it's easy to sort of flatten it out. And um, For example, I think one of the problems when we don't distinguish genre is going to be in the Old Testament texts, um, sort of the prophetic ones that are that can be difficult to understand. And if we take a very flat reading of it, right. it can give us a, a sort of skewed understanding. Like you wouldn't take this poem, Oh, Captain, My Captain, and give it a flat reading and pretend that he thinks that Abraham Lincoln is a captain. He knows that he, he's not a captain of a ship. It's a metaphor. We don't have a problem with that. I think we do sometimes have a problem with it when it comes to Scripture, just because a lot of us weren't exposed to that. And then another facet of that genre discussion I think that's worth pointing out before we get into Genesis 1 is you brought up the Gospels. And correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the fact that, so the Gospels were not written as a history book that we would write today, but they were written in a historical uh, fashion, a historical manner that was not common for religious writings 
of antiquity. Is that correct? Yeah. So they the the Gospels, and 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 this is mostly geared towards the synoptic Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, they were written in a genre that Richard Bauckham um, calls uh, the bios. They they're they're in the category of really what we would consider biography. Um, there's there's some really notable uh, bios um, uh, books about. Um, the Caesars and Alexander the Great and things like that. They're they're um, they're not quite what we would consider a biography that we do today. Again, falling under modern historical canons, where you're going in chronological order. Um, but they're 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 not typical for what we would tip what we would hope to find or expect to find, I should say, um, in religious literature of the time. You'll you'll find kind of what we would expect to find in religious literature of the time when you're reading through um, some of the Gnostic Gospels or when you're reading through um, some of the the other kind of um, mystery cults uh, around that time period. Okay, so one criticism that I heard about your paper and your presentation, um, actually, go ahead and just give me give me the two minute version of what we're going to find in your paper. So the the paper and I and I plan on releasing an, an audio version of the paper on the podcast. So for those listening, it, it is coming because I know not everyone wants to read through a twenty two page paper. Um, basically, the argument is that Genesis 1 is not written as an attempt for the author um, who, who, you know, I would typically argue as Moses. I don't really take the time to develop that in the paper, although I reference it. Um, it, it it's not his attempt to try to explain how God materially created the universe or material created um, the earth, right? That That's just not the purpose of Genesis 1. Genesis 1 um, was written as a polemic uh, a polemical creation account showing that Yahweh is the true creator God, the one creator God, um, over and against um, these other these other creation myths and narratives of the um, specifically of the Egyptians. Although I think there are some kind of shots across the bow at some other uh, Mesopotamian um, literature, like the Enuma Elish, uh, for example. Um, but the the entire point is that it's it's written as a polemic. It's written as as an as an uh, an assault on those showing um, that God is the true creator God, and that and that really is the purpose. Um, what Moses is trying to get across, um, and and he's writing it at a time period, and this this does become relevant. He's writing at a time period where the children of Israel are sitting in the plains of Moab about to enter the land. Um, and they're, we have to remember they came out of Egypt with a mixed multitude. They, they're probably about as just as populous um, uh, Israelites as they are of kind of, you know, you know uh, expatriate um, Egyptians. So um, there, there really is some, some cultural necessity there for um, theological fidelity, and we see that throughout the Pentateuch. I mean, the, the, one of the main thrusts of the entire Pentateuch is uh, don't go after the other gods. Um, and it starts out that I mean that is probably the main theme uh, of of the Pentateuch, or at least one of the top three. Um, and it starts out that way. Um, that's how it starts. That you don't go after the other gods because on, there is only one Creator, uh, true God of the universe, and that is Yahweh. 
Um, and that, that really is the entire point. The paper um, develops different ways that um, to understand uh, polemics and, and gives some examples of how that's done um, and then does a little bit of uh, comparative literature comparing some of um, the, you know, the temple texts and the early texts um, uh, from, from Egypt um, and comparing that to, um, to Genesis, the Genesis literature and showing um, exactly why we can see uh, it, it is borrowing a lot of the structure and the, the idioms and um, some of the motifs, but it, but it's repurposing them um, for a specific reason. Um, and and I, there's there's some analogous things that I do with Exodus throughout there. So, uh, but the, but again, the entire point is is to really get away from um, you know my intention of it is to get away from that that evolution that creation debate because I just don't think that that's the point of the passage. And so you know if we keep focusing that question, if we keep answer or asking that question. Um, the, those questions about evolution and creation and all that kind of stuff, we're just, we're just missing the significance of the text and, and what I think um, the, the author meant for us to take away from it, meant his audience to take away from it. Okay, so if Moses didn't write this, or whoever wrote this, didn't write it to give an account of the physical material creation of the universe, and really it's just sort of spiritual truths and arguments against surrounding people groups is that just rehash liberalism no so th- so that i mean that was one critique that the that the paper got so it's not rehash liberalism so the the liberal the, what the liberal critic you know critical scholar wants to do is they want to say because they're trying to defend the documentary hypothesis, which is basically you have a bunch of sources, you have JEPD, um, which stands you know, for the Yahweh source and the Elohim source and the priestly source and the Deuteronomical source. Um, and it basically sees all of these different sources being brought together by what's called a redactor, which is basically like, a, like a, an editor, multiple editors, and it keeps getting redacted over time. And what they're going to want to say is that Israel is really an invention, that, that all of this history is an actual history. Um, you don't have a historical Moses. You don't really have kind of um, a, a nation of Israel until a bunch of Semites are, are, you know, are taken out of the land by Assyria and by Babylon. They find themselves in exile. They're trying to kind of cope with being in a, in a foreign land now. And so they want to create their own history. And so you have this this priestly class that comes together and they, they um, kind of patchwork together their own um, history to give themselves significance and to give themselves meaning back once they come back and they inhabit the land. And so what uh, the, the early liberals would do um, is they would find these parallels or attempt to try to find these parallels um, not between Egyptian and Babylonian literature, uh, I'm sorry, Egyptian and Mesopotamian literature, but between uh, Assyrian and Babylonian literature, because they're going to want to say, oh, well, this priestly class um, really was just, it, it, it found itself in the historical context of the exile or the, or the post-exile. And so um, if, if we can find all of these analogies between that period, then it, then it justifies the claim that the historical setting for the composition of most of the Old Testament um, is this exilic or post-exilic period. Um, and so they're going to want to deny um, any historical accuracy, any historical reliability to the text um, besides um, the, you know, 
uh, what's what's called uh, you know lower history, um, uh, which is really you know it tells us about the kind of the the sits and laban or the situation in life of um, this priestly class in the exile and tells us what they were thinking about and things like that. So that that's that's kind of the historical relevance that the the, the critical scholar would want to find out of it. Um, the reason why I, I think that that's nonsense is. Uh, it because it's just nonsense. Um, if, if you read through the paper, it's very, very clear, um, not only from some of the idioms that are used, um, but Genesis borrows the exact structure. Genesis 1 borrows the exact structure uh, of Egyptian temple texts uh, and creation narratives, um, it, it, which, which is really interesting I, because it, it shows that the actual historical setting of the composition of Genesis was right around... Um, some experience dealing with Egypt. Um, I wrote a couple articles that, that I might link on, on um, my, my page for this episode, um, basically showing the way that the, the, um, the Pentateuch borrows um, words and language um, and, and name count and, and things like that um, from, um, from Egypt. And this is just another example of that, where it's really interacting with Egyptian texts, which puts the situation, the Sitz and Laban of the author in and around that that time period where most conservative scholars are going to want to date the Exodus and they're going to want to date Moses and they're going to want to um, put a date on um, the children of Israel, uh, you know, running the conquest of the land and things like that. It really actually situates the composition of the Pentateuch in that classically conservative time period um, and it's going to uphold a lot of these historical events um, and and really lead uh, credibility to the claims that it was written by um, that 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 generation that was leaving um, out of Exodus and it, that it was written by someone who was conversant and you know was was well educated on Egyptian mythology and and, and Egyptian um, religious beliefs, which, you know, we have a prime candidate for that in Moses being raised in Pharaoh's court. So actually, I think this this really helps to undergird um, the conservative viewpoint of Moses as the author of the Pentateuch and, and you know, a, a conservative historical date for um, its composition and the Exodus. So I, th- I think that's a really important point that, that needs to stand out is the fact that whereas the liberals would sort of take the same the same idea of this being a reaction to one's neighbors and say that means that it's post-Babylonian captivity, so much, much, much later dating, uh, and that it would deny the inerrancy of Scripture, and then it would deny a mosaic authorship, uh, and sort of comes from the context of, like you said, trying to support the documentary hypothesis, that this is not one text written by one author, but multiple texts written from multiple perspectives and brought together in one. And the way that you've laid it out really reinforces that, no, this actually predates um, the creation of the state of Israel, uh, or is at least contemporaneous with, not post-exilic, and it actually is a unified document across the entire spectrum— and in fact, Moses would be the likely author of this, and so you have radically different conclusions. Yeah, I mean, you're you're you know, one someone basically said, oh, well, you're just rehashing the work of Peter Enns, um, which is weird because um, I expressly state that um, 
while I appreciate some of the historical work of Peter Enns, uh, I, I think he is, you know, way out in left field on so many things. Um, there's there's nothing about the paper, and this this was something that got a lot of accused. You know, I was accused of of heresy and things like that, and I kept asking, well, you know. What uh, what doctrine does this uh, you know does this view undermine you know what is <laughs> um, what is you know what what's the heresy that's happening here um, which is it, you know they couldn't really give an answer because there's no major doctrine um, that it undermines because it doesn't undermine God as creator. Um, it doesn't undermine creationism broadly. It doesn't undermine inerrancy because, uh, it, you know, inerrancy just refers to, to um, it being not making any false, um, false statements. Um, and it, it doesn't undermine inspiration because I would say, well, God inspired Moses to write uh, Genesis as, as, as it's written <laughs> for the purpose that he wrote it for. Um, so, there, there, you know, which, which is going to make me, you know, stand over and against Peter Enns. Um, so you know, it, it was weird to hear these you know claims that it, that it, that it's heresy just because um, it has nothing to do with heresy, um, and, and they also you know they claimed that it undermined the doctrine of perspicuity, which is weird, right? The doctrine of perspicuity is basically the doctrine that um, the text of scripture is um, readily understood. Um, to say that this undermines perspicuity, um, well, let me make the accusation. Yeah, what you're basically saying is that we've been reading it wrong, and that uh, to put it in the the harshest terms, you kind of need this secret hidden knowledge that you've discovered in order to really understand what the text says. And if that's true, then the text isn't actually clear, and really, that's Gnosticism. So, what would you say to that charge? <laughs> Yeah, which which you know, people might think you're being a little dramatic, but that was a charge that that the paper actually got. You're you're repeating uh, an objection that I received, claiming that it was Gnosticism. Um, the the answer to that is well, no. Perspicuity has always referred to the overall you know um, warp and woof, uh, the overall redemptive um, arc of the scriptures. I mean, the 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 idea is that from from Genesis to Revelation, the overall plan of redemption and the gospel message is so simple that a child can understand it. It doesn't mean that every single passage, that every single text, is going to be equally clear and easy to understand. Uh, my my kind of not too sarcastic response to this is to ask that person, go read me the book of Obadiah without reading a single historical text and tell me what in the world is happening, right? I, I don't know anyone that could come away from, from reading, reading Obadiah without understanding the, the history of what was happening during um, the divided kingdom and, and, and the, some of the wars that are happening and be able to understand and give me an accurate interpretation of the book of Obadiah. It's just not going to happen. Um, you know, there, there's all kinds of texts that we can think of. What's, you know, what's happening in, in the book of Revelation? Well, if, if you don't study the Old Testament and the, and the imagery and everything in the Old Testament, you're not going to understand the book of Revelation. Um, I just think that that's what's happening in Genesis 1. It doesn't undermine perspicuity to say that we need to study some history and we need to study some of the the background and the genre and, and a little bit like that to come to a, a really robust understanding. And, and, and to be honest, I, I don't even think you need to do that much. Um, I, I think, you know, the overall, if you want to talk about perspicuity of the scriptures, 
it's very clear and we all agree that the the main point is that who well, who is the creator of the universe yahweh god the one true God. There's only one creator. Um, it's also, you don't have to dig that far to realize that um, Genesis 1 also teaches that their, you know, creation is not itself divine. Um, when you read any other creation account, um, there, there's no such thing as the sun. There, there is a deity who stands in the place of the sun. Um, the waters are divine. The hills are divine. The stars are divine. I mean, these, these, are, these are polytheistic, each one. When you read through Genesis 1, what's very clear is that it's a demythologized creation. Um, it, it's not, it's not these two, you know, the moon and the sun are not two deities, uh, fighting for control over, you know, the seasons. Um, they are the greater light and the lesser light. Um, and their purpose is to mark out seasons. Um, so, you know, the, the, just the basic, you know, intent of the passage is very, very clear. I, I, I don't think it takes much study. Um, and I think that that is something that every young earth creationist, old earth creationist, theistic evolutionist, uh, or someone that holds to a literary view like mine is going to agree upon. We, we all basically understand that that's the point of the passage. Um, that's, that's kind of the overall intent of the passage. We're just going to disagree on the type of genre and the, and the way that it gets there and how it presents it. Um, so it's it's a strange claim to say that it undermines perspicuity or that it's somehow Gnosticism because it takes a certain amount of study and that if you don't do that study then you're outside of the secret knowledge. It's just a it's it's just a bizarre claim that would never be leveled. Right? If if I was making this claim that in order to understand Obadiah. Um, you would have to understand this historical context, and these are the kings that are in place, and you know this is this is the threat from Assyria to the north, and and, and so on and so forth. No one's going to come to me and say, "Oh, well, you're undermining perspicuity. That's heresy. You're, you know, you're defending Gnosticism because you're saying it takes this secret academic knowledge to understand the text." Right? No one's going to make that claim, but because it touches on a very sensitive topic, which is young Earth creationism, for a lot of people. Um, it, it's you know it's a sensitive issue for them, and there's quite a bit of backlash against a view like mine that would seem to undermine their interpretation of the passage. Well, if I were to go with one example where I think it might help us understand where we put this sort of in-depth historical knowledge would be the ancient Near East covenant documents that we've really only been able to examine in the past 200 years since we've sort of rediscovered a lot of antiquity and were able to translate things. Um, so he, here, most evangelicals would accept that the covenants in the Old Testament are similar to, if not the same as, suzerain vassal um, covenants of the Old Testament. Now, a lot of this work has been done in the past century. A lot has been put forward by Meredith Klein, for example. But almost any evangelical book that you pick up that deals with redemptive history is going to compare the biblical covenants to surrounding covenants in the ancient Near East. And for much of Christian history, we didn't have access to those covenants. So we were able to understand the general arc of redemptive history. We were able to understand what a covenant is. Uh, and in fact, in some ways, we were possibly even more able to understand because they lived in a, a monarchical Society, whereas we we it's hard for us to understand that relationship between a suzerain and a vassal. But this extra work that's come about allows us to get a, a deeper understanding of what we already got the contours of 
would that be a fair comparison? Yeah, I think that's a really, really good comparison. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, we didn't have a really great understanding of, of ancient covenants um, until, like you said, the last two centuries or so. Um, and and it's just it's just become such commonplace that we don't even think about it that much. I mean, it's just it's common knowledge um, so far uh, to to the point where most scholars are going to read the book of Deuteronomy as an entire covenant book, and they're going to see it following really the, the you know the five segments of of a treaty covenant or, or a, a, a suzerain vassal covenant, which is a preamble, a historical prologue, uh, ethical stipulations. And then you have sanctions, which is blessing and curses, uh, and then you have succession, which is basically uh, how it carries out to, to future generations or to sons and, and, and so forth. Um, and the book of Deuteronomy follows that exact pattern. Um, you can read about it in Klein's book, The Treaty of the Great King. Um, and no one, no one has a problem with that. No one's going to say, oh, well, you know, that's Gnosticism. You're, you, you know, it takes this academic Gnostic knowledge to understand that, that passage. Well, no, I mean that's it. It's actually helped us to further understand the the, the passage. It, most of us are going to be grateful for that, and we're say, "Oh, it's deepened our understanding of the scriptures. Uh, it's deepened our understanding of kind of the world and life view of uh, of uh, of the author of the passage uh, of the of the text and 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 the recipients of the text and and so on and so forth." Um, so so really. Uh, you know, usually, unless it's you know runs contrary to what is a deeply held um, conviction, like young Earth creationism is for so many people, um, most people are going to be thankful for this type of work. Well, and for example, this doesn't uh, this doesn't contradict, or it's not like we discovered a new piece of evidence that completely we've been misreading the Bible the entire time. This new piece of understanding about the cultural context means that we were wrong on. Whatever subject, where you do see that in scholarship, for example, around uh, homosexuality in 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 the Greek world, right? Well, those weren't committed relationships, and so there's scholarship that tries to say we've been misreading what Paul was talking about. He was talking about different cultural things, or even closer to home, the new perspective on Paul, which says, well, we've rediscovered things about Second Temple Judaism that reframe the understanding of justification. Paul wasn't really using courtroom language. Uh, and it's sort of that th- those undermine the the way that we've understood these doctrines throughout Christian history. Uh, the ancient Near East covenants don't do that. This understanding of Genesis doesn't do that. Right. Yeah, and, and, and you know, those are really good examples. And, and the funny thing is, so like the new perspectives on Paul, it's actually been a mixed bag. So some of the things about the new perspectives a lot of the historical work they've done on, on Second Temple Judaism um, has been really, really helpful. Uh, it's really helped us to understand the landscape um, uh, of the theological uh, beliefs and, and soteriology and, and kind of the, the, how, the, the diversity of beliefs during that period. Um, the historical work has been very, very helpful. Now, a lot of us are going to say, okay, well, some of the theological interpretation of that um, and some of the, the really eisegesis of, of that back onto some of the biblical texts, um, a lot of it, like you said, is, is going to undermine things like justification by faith alone and, and um, you know, personal salvation and things like that. So a lot of us are going to have some issues with that. 
but it's a good example of um, you know the, the the historical work has been very very fruitful, uh, and most conservative scholars are going to accept huge portions of the historical work done by uh, you know people like. Uh, done and, and right and things like that. So um, so it's it's a really helpful example also to show that it's mixed bag. So ends is it, you know probably a good example, right? So ends and historical work um, that he's done um, on, on kind of the um, uh, early Israelite historical setting has been really helpful, even though his, some of his theological positions are just way out in left field, like I said earlier. Um, although there there are a lot of conservative scholars that are are working on these same issues, I mean, I, I draw a lot of this from John Walton and from John Currid and Kenneth Kitchen, um, Meredith Klein, I mean, and none of these people are going to be, you know, kind of Princeton liberals. Um, they are uh, they're they're conservative scholars doing really great work um, on the issue, um, but at the same time. I don't think as Christians, I mean, if we really do hold that all truth is God's truth, that there are two books of uh, of God, that there's, you know, God's special revelation and God's general revelation, I don't see why we need to be afraid of the Princeton liberals. I mean, if they do great historical work, great, use it. <laughs> uh, if if it's really really helpful, we don't we don't need to be afraid and kind of dig our head in the sand and say, oh well, you know, it, any any and every single pen stroke of a, of a Princeton liberal we have to reject. Um, that's just not how. Um, you know, intellectual and reasonable um, analysis works. So, uh, I, you know, but but again, a lot of this uh, is is not. You know, I'm not really presenting much new. And I was accused. You know, you're not presenting anything new. You're just you're just presenting same old rehash liberalism. Well, no, I'm not. I'm actually presenting a lot of stuff that John Walton and John Currid and Meredith Klein uh, have already presented. Uh, I'm just synthesizing them kind of together in one tapestry. Well, and that was certainly the position of the reformers. Um, particularly, John Calvin comes to mind. Calvin was a man who was steeped in the humanist education system of the time, and certainly wouldn't throw away someone's scholarship simply because they weren't a believer. And it's part of the understanding of common grace. Yeah, uh, that that it is our heritage. So, one last thing before uh, we wrap up this introduction. Episode one, actually, of Ask a Millennial Christian, we talked about hermeneutics. And when in our discussion of hermeneutics, which I encourage you to go back and listen to, we talked about the historical grammatical method. And I think most of our listeners are going to be familiar with that. But your paper is entitled, A Historical Grammatical and Polemical Reading of Genesis 1. So I just want to ask, what is what does polemical mean? That's a word that we might hear, uh, but I don't know that a lot of us have clarity on it. So what is polemical? Yeah, so so polemics is, and this this draws a lot on the work of John Currid. Um, polemics is, which going back, if anyone wants a really great lecture series by John Currid, um, you can look on iTunes U. There, he did a three part lecture series um, uh, called "Crass Plagiarism" with a question mark, uh, which is which is fantastic. Um, or he wrote a book, uh, really, which is an introduction to polemics in the Old Testament, um, called "Against the Gods," which is just uh, you know fantastic. Um, that I recommend to everyone that's interested in these topics. Um, polemics is basically um, rhetoric used against um, an opposing ideology. Um, but in the Old Testament, it takes a specific form. So in the Old Testament, um, during during that period, the author would take the phrases and the idioms and the metaphors and the motifs of whatever that opposing ideology is 
and he would recast them for a different purpose in order to almost satirize um, the opposing view. Um, so one of the clearest examples of this, and, and it happens all over the place. I mean, it happens throughout the Old Testament. It's just really, really common in the book of Exodus, um, specifically in the, in the the interchange between Pharaoh uh, and Moses and, and the plagues. It's just all over the place. Um, anyone who's ever studied the plagues knows that each one of the plagues is basically an assault on an Egyptian deity. Um, so it, it, those, those are almost life pictures uh, you know, uh, lived out polemics, um, but we have literary polemics, and and a really clear example, and I know we've talked about this one, um, is the use of the strong arm. Um, now, the strong arm was a phrase that was used in Egyptian literature to describe Pharaoh. Um, Pharaoh was actually the one who had the strong arm. Um, it was very common in the Middle Kingdom period, which is about uh, 2030 to 1640 uh, BCE. Um, and we read things like in the hymn uh, of uh, Sennusaret, uh, the first, um, we read things like, Moreover, he is a might, mighty man who achieves with his strong arm a champion without equal. Um, more relevant during the, the Hiskos period, which is right around the time period that um, many people would start dating the Exodus, if you're talking about an early date. Um, we read Tutmosis II being described as great in power and mighty in arm. Um, these, these great arms, these mighty arms, the outstretched hand, the mighty hand, um, uh, these are terms that were descriptions of Pharaoh before we have anything encapsulated in scripture, right? If, so, so most conservatives are going to say that Moses um, was really the first author of any biblical book, um, right? And, and if he's not writing until the Exodus, right, until the plains of Moab, while the children of Israel are, are uh, waiting to, to, you know, enter the promised land, um, all, of these, all of these references to the pharaohs, and I give a whole bunch of examples in the paper, predate that. Um, but but we read throughout Exodus that it that it's Yahweh who has the mighty hand. He has the outstretched arm. He has the mighty arm um, that accomplishes uh, his his goals. Right, and and it's and and there's this striking example in 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 Deuteronomy six twenty one where um, we're told that the Lord overthrew Pharaoh and, and defeated the powers of Egypt by his mighty hand. Anyone familiar now with with the literature uh, of Egypt realizes the deep irony that Moses is drawing. He's saying all of this time, everyone looks at Pharaoh as the one with the mighty hand and the outstretched arm and the and the, you know the mighty arm and the strong arm. But really, it's Yahweh that has the mighty hand and the outstretched arm. That that Yahweh, by by the might of his hand, could overthrow Pharaoh and all of the powers of Egypt. So it's not Pharaoh that has the mighty hand. It's Yahweh that has the mighty hand. Um, that's polemics, right? That's literary polemics. It, it's taking um, a term or an idiom. It's alluding to it, and it's repurposing it to satirize or to assault the beliefs um, or, or the, the, the ideology of an opposing um, uh, nation or, or culture. 
And it just happens throughout the book uh, of Exodus. It happens throughout Deuteronomy. It happens throughout. And I'm going to say, you know, my argument is, well, it happens in Genesis 1 also. Um, it, it happens, um, you know, throughout that entire structure. So, you know, I, I give I give a... Um, uh, a, a chart in the paper um, to chart this out, and so for for those for those listening, for you. So if I if I were to say, you know, what what structure is this? Right, you have you have pre creation condition. There's there's you know lifeless chaos, and there's a watery deep. There's there's a breath or a wind that's hovering over the waters. Uh, there there's the word that speaks that creates the the first light. Uh, land then is is comes forth from from uh, from among um, the you know the sacred waters. Um, the skies, uh, you know, the waters above and the waters below separate. Um, there's the formation formation uh, of the heavenly ocean at that point. You know, the, the waters above. There's the formation then of the dry ground based on that separation. Um, there's uh, then you know you sprout plants and fish, birds, reptiles, and land animals, um, and then there is the creation of uh, cults and cities and and offerings and and all of that. What what order? What book order is that? And I think most of us are going to say, well, that's Genesis, right? That that's Genesis one and following. Well, no, that's actually the Shabaka stone, the you know the Memphis Memphis tablet um, that comes hundreds of years before the book of Genesis, right? So, you know, Genesis, the, 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 the way that it starts out at the very beginning, it's setting up the dichotomy between Yahweh, the true creator, and all of these gods of Egypt who, 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 are, who are nothing. They didn't actually bring about any type of creation uh, no, Atum is not the divine light. Light is is actually a creation by by Elohim, by God Himself. Right. The 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 entire purpose of Genesis one is to satirize the Egyptian creation mythology and to show that these gods are actually nothing. In the same way that the plagues showed that these gods were nothing. Um, in the same way to show that you know Hecate was not the god I, I think of uh, health or something like that. I, I don't remember all the exact um, deities and what they did, um, but but in the exact same way that the plagues satirized and, and mocked and showed God's power over Egypt in the way that they would ascribe to their deities, Genesis one does the exact same thing um, in in literary form. So that really is the argument of the paper. It has nothing, again, to do with inerrancy, but it also has nothing to do with science. The point of the paper is not to show the hydronic cycle of the early Earth. Right? That's not what it's trying to tell us. Um, and so I think we do violence to the text when we try to read and understand it that way. And that would make a lot of sense if you were trying to create a nation out of people who had been living in Egypt for a long time and ad adopted or at least were familiar with that culture, you would want to speak to what they were coming out of. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have to remember that they had been there for 400 years. Um, and, and, and part of me wants to say, okay, well, when we read, when we read through Exodus, What's surprising is that God doesn't say, okay, keep worshiping like you've always been, you, you know, you've been really faithful worshipers of Yahweh up until now. No, he has to teach them how to worship. He has to give them right theology. Um, he has to um, he has to give them the right structure for how to live as followers of of God and, and as God's people. He's he's calling them out of that. Um, and we also have to remember that uh, among Israel, like I said earlier, was the mixed multitude. 
Um, which again, if you're reading through, by the way, if you're reading through Exodus and you're trying to understand a lot of the, the what's happening, it, it's really helpful to remember um, that not all of Israel is Israel, so to speak. Um, there are a lot of Egyptians that came out <laughs> with the children of Israel, um, which explains a lot of the, the issues that they have early on um, with circumcision and the other things. So you're trying to create uh, what God is trying to do in Exodus is he's calling out the, you know, the children of Abraham, um, but he's also for the first time establishing them as an independent people uh, with, with their own distinct um, proper worship of, of the one true God. And so that what needs to be corrected is all of that, that cultural and theological baggage and context that they've lived in for the past 400 or so years. Um, and, and by the way, we, ha- we have to remember that it's not as though the patriarchs were, you know, pictures of theological fidelity either. Um, so if, you know, if you read back through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob uh, and, and Joseph and so forth, it, you know, they, they had obviously um, a, a proper understanding of, of, of Yahweh, but they also had some really strange um, when you actually look through their their beliefs in their lives, they had some strange beliefs. I mean, there's they're they're not you know picture perfect ideals that we should follow in every aspect of their life um, and every aspect of their belief. Uh, they they did have some some pagan beliefs mixed in there that got them into trouble on certain things. Um, so so it you know it's just it it's helpful to understand that, that the purpose of this text is part of the nation building of Israel, bringing them out of Egypt and out of that context. And part of the reason why we might miss this is because specifically it's it's alluded to. So, for example, if you if an American sits down and reads the account of the ten plagues, I don't think that you would get from that that it's a polemical attack on the gods around the area because we're not familiar with those gods and we wouldn't see that in the text. I think a similar thing is happening here with Genesis because we're not familiar with the milieu with the context that these people are emerging from, we miss this because the the way that illusion works, it's not specifically, the text doesn't say uh, this plague was in reference to this god. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you and I, it's, it's funny, um, you and I were trying to think of a good modern example of, of what an illusion would be and how you know how you can use one one phrase or one idiom and it, and it paints an entire picture based on, because it's alluding to this whole this whole prior context that everyone kind of shares the understanding as of right now we don't you know we're in such a far removed context from ancient israel that we don't always know that full picture and you and i were trying to think of modern examples and and it was funny because in our in our personal conversations i don't think we realized it but i said one so you were asking me about when um when my baby is due and i you know i said we're we're five minutes to midnight um and you and i got the joke um, for those who don't know, five minutes to midnight, there was the during kind of the Cold War, there was a clock that was a countdown, and basically saying how you know how close we are to nuclear holocaust, basically. Um, and and as we got closer and closer to midnight, we got closer and closer to basically nuclear war. Um, and and the idea, you know, there's there's this the you know when I said we're five minutes to midnight. Uh, it means there's kind of we're we're impending, we're right on the verge of this you know cataclysmic world event, right? There's there's all of this this theme and concept and 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 uh, and and history that comes along with me just saying five minutes to midnight. 
Um, that is a really good example, kind of unintentionally, of what we were going to talk about here, of what illusion is um, and what we do in that text. Um, and and I, um, I show a bunch of different ways that there is illusion. Again, the good example is the mighty arm. Right, the the author of you know Moses, the or, or whoever you take as the author of Exodus, didn't have to write. Okay, well Pharaoh thinks that he has the mighty arm, but it's actually Yahweh, the one true Creator God, that has the mighty arm. Right? He didn't need to explicitly spell it all out. All he had to do was say Yahweh delivered Israel by His mighty right arm, and everyone in that context gets the joke because they know that whole historical setting. That's how illusion works, specifically in Old Testament polemics. That is the perfect. That is a perfect example because it's. I did. I charged you. I said, find a contemporary example of illusion so that we can explain to our listeners. And you used a, a great example, and we didn't even think of it. That's how common illusion is, but it only works if you're in the context from which it's drawn. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And and you know, for for the audience listening, I mean. Polemics has a rich history throughout the rest of the Old Testament too. So when we read through uh, the Psalms and, and 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 God is called the one that rides on the mighty storms, right? He he's basically shown as the storm. He's shown almost as the storm god, right? That doesn't mean that Israel actually thought that God was a storm god, right? What that's doing is that is taking the imagery used to describe Baal or some what some people call Baal who was the storm god for the Canaanites. What, they're, they're, that, that kind of polemics is used over and over and over again throughout the history of, of Israel and throughout the, the biblical text. We see it all the way through. It carries all the way through, and, I, and there are certain aspects where it's going to carry all the way through the book of Revelation. We just see it all the way through, and so I don't know why it's so surprising to people that we see it from the very beginning. Well, I do. It's because we haven't seen it this way we haven't been taught to see it this way it doesn't come natural to us it's it's a it's in many respects a foreign reading literally because it comes from a foreign culture so we're going to encourage people obviously to to read this paper or to listen to the podcast that you're going to put out but my question is going to be this a lot of people uh, are going to immediately be hostile to this or at least at a minimum their their defenses are going to be raised their shields are going to be raised there's another illusion uh, what because we've been ta- because our current climate is one that says Genesis is about creation, science has a competing worldview on creation. These two clash. You cannot accept both. Uh, and you're going to say, with this perspective, th- it, it, that completely bypasses it. That has nothing. That conversation about science and creation has nothing to do with what this text is about. What what does disagreement on this issue mean? Because there are going to be people who disagree with you on this. Yeah. What, what does that disagreement mean within the body of Christ? Yeah, I mean, part of me wants to say that we just need to be um, uh, sensitive with each other. Um, we, especially on this issue, it's almost become like a litmus test um, for some people. You know, um, if if you're a true Christian or not, um, you know, you you hold to young Earth creationism. Uh, and any threat to that is is um, is is seen as a major threat. Um, I, I'm a big fan of Doctor Who, and there's an episode basically where there's these two people, and they've been warring for so long that they don't even remember why they were warring. Um, it's kind of like the Hatfield and the McCoys, right? They they've just been fighting each other for so long that the fight is all there is left. 
Um, and a lot of times when I listen to these these fights between between young earth creationists and old earth creationists or between kind of Christians and, and, and uh, unbelievers and critics of the, of the biblical text, um, they, they fight these battles over it and they don't even ask, do we need to keep fighting this, right? Is, is, there, is this the right question? Is this the right you know, battleground that we should be defending? Um, and I, just coming to this, I'm just going to say, well, no, it's, it's not. Um, you're, you're, there, there's this strange irony that kind of the, the fundamentalistic atheists and the fundamentalistic you know, young earth creationists and, and old earth creationists um, all read the text in the same way. Um, and they all read it as basically um, a scientific text, right? Uh, the Christian might want to say, well, you know, there is a little bit of theology happening and stuff, but they're, they're all reading it as if the text is telling us how the, how the universe and how the earth was made physically, materially. materially. Um, and, and when you point that out, they're going to say, oh, well, you know, we're not, we're not reading science back on the text. But I'm going to say, well, no, you are. Uh, why don't you guys go and have that conversation about science on the side? You guys can, you know, talk about scientific methodology and, and find, you know, try, try to figure out, you know, the age of the earth. That's fine. Do that on scientific grounds. Go for it. Go nuts. Maybe the earth is 10,000 years old and you guys can, you know, determine that by science of, of you know, geology of, of the the Grand Canyon. I don't know. That's up to, that, you know, that's up to you guys. That's not my interest. That's not, you know, that's not my thing. But what it does is it frees us up from from asking all these questions, and it frees up the, the average Christian from needing to understand geology and evolutionary biology and astronomy and 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 everything to be able to try to defend Genesis one. Um, when again, the the purpose of Genesis one is just Yahweh is creator over and against any other uh, any other god, any other deity, any other worldview. God is the one true creator, and we are part of His creation. Um, and and God is to be worshipped. His creation is not to be worshipped. Um, that is the that is the takeaway from the passage. That's the takeaway from from Genesis one. Um, and so that that I think that's a really helpful thing. It, it touches on apologetics. It touches on biblical theology. I think it touches on uh, just kind of Christian living and our and our and our understanding of these passages and its application for for us and for our lives. Um, it just frees us up from so much of this baggage that we've been waging really for, you know, since kind of the fundamentalist controversy of the early 19th century and, and scope trials and, and all this kind of stuff. A lot of people don't realize that, that young earth creationism didn't really become a mainstay or a, a main contention really until that time period. You have, the, the, you know, it, it's funny because the, the accusation that, you know, I'm undermining inerrancy and all this kind of stuff, you know, because I want to hold this view, they don't realize that you have people like B.B. Warfield who literally wrote the book on inspiration and inherency. Like he wrote the, the fundamental uh, uh, textbook on it, if you will, um, that, that basically everyone else refers to if you want to be orthodox, um, was someone who basically said, yeah, evolution doesn't really pose a problem for this. Um, but that was, you know, several decades before Scopes trial um, and before well, kind of the, the radicalization of, of uh, young earth creationism against kind of the encroachment of modernism uh, into the church. Since you bring up the Scopes, tro- Snopes, Scopes. Yeah. Not Snopes. Not, Scopes. Not, not, not the debunking website, not Snopes. Scopes, the Scopes yes. monkey trial. 
since you bring up the Scopes trial, I will definitely echo the sentiment that I am more interested in the Rock of Ages than I am the Age of Rocks. Yeah, absolutely. So do you have... Have you formulated in your mind how the next couple episodes of your show are going to go so the listeners can have an idea of that? Yeah, I, I think I'm actually just going to read through the paper. Um, again, I know a lot of people aren't going to read through 22 pages. Um, I, I will try to kind of um, uh, skip over. There are some technical things in there, so some, some technical stuff in the footnotes. Uh, I'm obviously not going to read out the footnotes. Um, so it, it does, it does, it is helpful to read through the paper. Um, but I, I'm, you know, there's some charts in there that are helpful and some images and, and, and graphics. Um, but, I, but I'm basically for the next two or three episodes, depending on how, how it divides up, I'm just going to read through the paper to help people understand this view and to engage with it. And, and I'm, you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not super dogmatic about this. I'm more than happy to be convinced otherwise, but someone just, you know, ranting and yelling at me and saying, oh, well, you're denying inerrancy. That's not going to convince me. Look, you, you need to come you need to come to me and you need to um, present better exegetical uh, and hermeneutical understanding of the passage than what I've presented and what I'm convinced of in the paper. You know, it wouldn't be that hard to convince me otherwise. Go for it. If, if you think that I'm wrong, then, then argue and come up with better evidence and arguments um, for, for, for why um, that's the case. But I think that what I present is is rather compelling. I think it, it fits well with the historical setting of the composition of the text. Um, I think it fits well with some, like I said, I mentioned uh, two other articles that I wrote on um, some of the other uh, connections between um, the Old Testament uh, composition um, really being within an Egyptian context rather than uh, an exilic context. Um, there, there, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of cash value for this theory or for this 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 certain interpretation that touches on a lot of a lot of other things and upholds a lot of other um, really helpful what I think are helpful academic positions that are completely in line with conservative biblical scholarship um, and so to 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 change my mind to, you know ranting isn't gonna isn't going to do it um getting upset and and you know calling me a heretic or whatever even though you can't name a single uh, essential doctrine of christianity that this is a violation or even undermines isn't going to re- really be helpful but i'm happy to have a you know an open dialogue with people if, if they'd like to um read or listen through the, the the next episodes um read through the paper and really have that discussion well, this has been Owen Pawn of the Ask a Millennial Christian uh, joint episode between me and Tyler, Tyler of the Freedthinker podcast. You can find both of our podcasts at the Christus Victor Network. Tyler is my absolute favorite apologetics podcast. If you're interested at all in defending the faith, I would highly recommend you go there. He has a couple series that I think are very helpful, particularly one on slavery. I know that's a conversation a lot of people want to have with us, and he does a, a great job going through it. And if you're interested in Genesis 1 and you have any questions about it, I would highly encourage you to go listen to his follow-up as follow-up episodes on this. I myself am, am still thinking through this. I only recently came to this understanding of the, the use of polemics in the Old Testament, and this is my first experience with it in Genesis 1. I, I, I found the paper very interesting, very persuasive, and I'm looking forward to some substantive interaction over this in the, the coming weeks and months. 
Well, thank you again for joining us on this episode of the Freed Thinker podcast. Hopefully, you enjoyed that discussion and will stay tuned for the audio version of the paper that's to come, as well as check out some of Owen's uh, content and his material over on Ask a Millennial Christian on the Christus Victor Network. In the meantime, if you did enjoy the show, but you have some questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, feel free to head on over to the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com. Leave your comments there, or you can email me at freethinkerpodcast at gmail.com, or why not join in the dialogue on the Freedthinker Podcast Facebook group. Today, I'm going to end the show with a couple of advertisements for some great content for my friends over at Striving for Eternity and Logical Belief Ministries. Good night, and God bless. Jehovah's Witnesses. Ding dong! Mormons! Christian, are you ready to defend the faith when false religions ring your doorbell? Do you know what your Muslim and Jewish friends believe? You will if you get Andrew Rappaport's book, What Do They Believe? When we witness to people, we need to present the truth, but it is very wise to know what they believe, and you will get Andrew Rappaport's book at whatdotheybelieve.com. Hi, this is Jason from the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. Putting your faith and trust in the finished work of Christ is the most logical and rational belief an image bearer of God can have. The purpose of this podcast is to equip believers and challenge unbelievers. Have you ever been concerned about how to answer your Mormon coworker, Jehovah's Witness neighbor, or atheist brother-in-law? Check us out at logicalbelief.org. You will find many helpful resources that will not only bolster your faith, but provide you with cogent answers and responses to many of the objections to the Christian faith. Topics range from presuppositional apologetics, the cults, to science and Calvinism. Live debates and discussions from time to time. Listen, share, and subscribe. Soli Deo Gloria.